This is an odd Mother's Day text, but we find ourselves in the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. For the churched folks, this will probably be a familiar story to you, um, but I'm hopeful it will help us to understand maybe this day in a different way than we have understood it previously. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my lord. This woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord. Give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. The word of God for the people of God. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> what a strange story for us to, to dive into this evening. Um, what we have here traditionally is a story about King Solomon. In the verses immediately preceding this story, Solomon has that famous prayer where he asks God to bestow upon him wisdom, that he would rule with equity, that he would rule justly, that he would rule, in a sense, as God himself rules. And this story, which interestingly enough does not name Solomon, nor does it name these two individuals, has been placed in this particular point in the story to demonstrate the wisdom that Solomon, in fact, possessed as a king to be able to rule wisely. Now, if you think for a moment about the ancient Near Eastern socio-historical context, as I know you are oft to do. You have two prostitutes whose uh, testimony was not probably seen with much validity, yet here they are pleading their case before the king, and what they do is they say time and time again, I believe it states four times in the text, that they were alone in the house and no one else was there. This is a true case of she said, she said. 
the king also in this moment of ruling, I don't know if, if you guys have spent time in church, but growing up, it seems as though this is the story par excellence to demonstrate that Solomon in fact has wisdom. But if you really go underneath of the surface, the story is just very strange in how he enacts his, his rule. I wanna read something from a commentary and stick with me, it's kinda long, but I'll try to keep you with me. Unfortunately, the judgment of the king is questionable. He never interrogates the two women. He accepts at face value the complainant's claim that there were no other witnesses. He does not point to the obvious gaps in her version of events and the purely circumstantial nature of the charge. He does not notice that she claimed to have been so soundly asleep that she did not know that her infant had been taken from her and another placed in her bosom, and yet she is able to report on all that was happening that night. He does not point to the inconsistency of her statement inasmuch as she herself admits that she did not know the child was already dead until the morning. Neither does the king question the respondent, choosing merely to accept her denial as adequate. Neither woman is required to take an oath or undergo some kind of test as the law stipulates for disputes involving no witnesses. He does not visit the site of the crime, nor does he send investigators to look for possible clues that may have been overlooked. Instead, he threatens the life of an innocent child, expecting the horrendous threat to provoke the responses he expects from his own stereotypes of the good mother and the deceptive woman. He does not consider the possibility that one or both women might be calling his bluff. So he pronounces one of them to be the mother of the child, curiously echoing the very words of the unspecified woman whose son is living by saying, give her the boy and by no means kill him. We see here this story that when you get underneath the surface, it, it raises very interesting and difficult subject matter for us to consider. I don't want to critique Solomon, although it seems as though his kingship ended in a certain way where he went kind of off the rails towards the end of his his life, but I want us to see for a moment how these two women, how they're described, and I wanna center in on just one line of this story. What's interesting to note is in this story, it's just driven by dialogue as Hebrew narrative usually is. This person says something, this person says something, it just keeps the, it keeps the narrative going, it's very terse, it's very to the point, there's not a lot of details, but in this story, there is one detail that seems to be of vast significance. The text says, the woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son. Another translation would say, but the woman whose son was alive said to the king, and this is why she spoke to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Or another translation, because compassion for her son burned within her. What we see here in this story is an example of a mother who is advocating for her child, but she's doing so in a very strange way under these unique circumstances. One scholar named Phyllis Tribble says this, motivated by compassion, this woman is willing to forfeit even justice for the sake of life. This woman seeing the potential conclusion of this king's verdict, saying, even though it's her own child, saying, let the other woman have him just so he can be alive, forsaking justice. By exposing the absurdity and insolubility of the power struggle between these two women, the king had occasioned in one of them a transcendent love which brings truth 
and life, and only after this development does the word mother appear in the story. When you start reading these stories very closely, we have these two women who are prostitutes that are fighting over this child, and after Solomon identifies the compassion and the heart of this woman, he pronounces her to be the mother. According to the story, the presence of a love that knows not the demands of ego, of possessiveness, or even justice reveals motherhood. We have the compassion of a mother. In our context, this compassion of a mother looks very different. And I know that whenever you gather this many people in a room, for some of you, your experiences with mom have been good. For some of you, your experiences with mom have been strained. For some of you, your experiences with mom have been cut short. But there are instances in life that are varied where we can see moms fighting for the justice of their child, fighting and advocating for their child to get whatever it is they need. This is the mom that works two or three jobs just to provide for her child. This is the mom that shows herself in the hallways of the school to advocate for her, her son or her daughter in the midst of problems, that has the ear of that teacher to be able to make sure that he or her is learning what it is that they need to learn to succeed. It's the mom that is loving and is present and is, is, is with her children in a way that is compelling, in a way that when those children grow up, they can only look back and say, my mom was present, or my mom was there, or my mom fought for me, or my mom loved me. When we think about the compassion of a mother, it's important to note, perhaps, and some people have taken this maybe a bit too far, but they've noted that this term compassion in the Hebrew language, it's related to the term for womb. The term for compassion is a Hebrew plural, rachamim, which is related to the term for womb, rachem. Uh, but these two words are, are, are linked together. They have the same root. They have the same kind of, um, they're, they're brought together. So when you talk about compassion in this language, there's hints back to motherly aspects. There's hints back to a mom who shows up and is present and fights and advocates for her child with compassion and with care and concern and with love. There are these images that we see that are, that are embedded within the very term of compassion. One scholar says, a woman shows her compassion for the child that came from inside of her. The feeling of compassion is the natural one for a mother to show. Compassion is not confined to mothers. Now, it is true throughout the Old Testament, there are other people that demonstrate this, this um, characteristic of compassion, yet there seems to be a hint that it is linked to mothering. Compassion is not confined to mothers, but it is an especially motherly feeling. There's a metaphor of this motherly compassion. Yes, we see it in the life of this prostitute as she is interacting with Solomon to advocate for her child. But we also see this present in God. In the book of Isaiah, specifically the last um, handful of chapters from Isaiah 40 through the end of the book in chapter 66, we see this taking place quite often because in that context, Israel had been booted out of the land. They were a people in exile. They were a people that needed comfort. They were a people that needed God's presence and God's goodness and just to know that God would be there for them in the midst of their own disasters. 
In Isaiah chapter 63, it says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion. This term here that's linked to this motherly intuition and love, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, his acts of commitment, the way that he demonstrates himself to be present in the lives of his people, continues, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. He carried them all the days of old. These metaphors continue in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 42, it says, for a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back, but now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and I pant. In Isaiah chapter 46, it says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. These metaphors of who God is go well beyond the bounds of what we, can, what we might often constrain him to be. Even in the language that I'm using here, we, go, we revert so carefully and, and casually back to that masculine pronoun of he and him. And I think in sometimes we miss the breadth of who God actually is in our lives and the lives of those around us. In Isaiah chapter 66, it says, for this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees as a mother comforts her child so I will comfort you. And then perhaps the most climactic image of God as the one with motherly compassion. In Isaiah 49, it says, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. If you remember a couple of years ago when we were going through Isaiah 40 through 55, this was constant. The people of Israel were saying, you, God, you have abandoned me. We are here, we are alone, we are in isolation. You're nowhere to be found. We can't trust you anymore. And there was this ongoing dialogue between the people who were in the lowest places of their lives, crying out to God to show God's self to be present. And God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? You know, physiologically, and I know you know this, physiologically, it's very difficult for a nursing mother to forget her child because her body will let her know when that feeding needs to take place. Can a, nursing, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even though these may forget, I will not forget you. For some of you, again, these, these motherly images, they don't connect because your mother has not been present. Your mother has not been a part of your life. Your mother has potentially abandoned you and left you and is not a part of your life. But for uh, a good number of people, these images of the mother being present and, and active in their lives, it, it, it seems to land, but what God is saying is, even in the best example of that, I'm infinitely greater. Even though they might forget you, I will not and I cannot. Perhaps one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah 
continues, I will not forget you. And in that, in that text, it, it doesn't mean like that just slips out of mind. It's, it's, a, it's a conscientious putting out of the mind. It is something where you turn your back on someone. It's not just it slips your, um, your memory. It's something where you, you, you make a conscientious choice to turn. But God is saying, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands and your walls are ever before me. In the midst of the lowest low, what God is saying is, you're in the palm of my hand. In the midst of the times of trial and the times of difficulty and the times of um, pain and suffering, which for some of you might be today, this day that in an American society we have designated to celebrate the moms, for some of you that might evoke difficulty. And what I want you to hear is God saying, you're in the palm of my hand, like the mom that you never had, or like the mom that the time with her has been cut short, or the mom that you still enjoy so much with, I'm infinitely greater than that relationship, that vibrant relationship that you have with her. And you remember how she showed up and she was present in your life and she fought for you and she advocated for you and she was there. I am too, in a way that she cannot even realize. God is going so far beyond this to give an image, to give a picture of who God is in the lives of his people. The metaphor of motherly compassion, Walter Brueggemann says it's a metaphor of sustaining, feeding, nurturing, and caring. These are not typically the metaphors that we use to understand God, who in, in many of our minds is the one who is back, transcendent, the one who is waiting to punish you when you sin, the one who is uh, gruff and angry and potentially ticked off, perhaps. But the images that we see here through this metaphor are, are different, and they completely fill out who God is. It's, an, it's, a, it's a metaphor of fiery passion, the one who will fight for you. It's an image and a metaphor of unwavering commitment, even in the midst of our own faithlessness, even in the midst of our own failings, even in the midst of our own sinfulness, even in the midst of our own wavering, even in the midst of our own doubt and our own questions and in our own flailings. God is present. This metaphor of God's motherly compassion is at the very core of it, an image of love providing you with the things that you need to survive, fighting for your best opportunities. One scholar says language about God should help us to understand and encounter God, but we should not confuse the reality of God with the limits of our language. I put this up here because I believe that when we think about God as mom, for some of you that might be like, whoa, crazy hippie stuff, but I think that we've boxed God in a little bit smaller than God would appreciate. And I think that if we're reading our Bibles closely and we're seeing how vast the metaphors are to describe who God is, we see God as tower, shield, defender, shepherd, the one who cares for us. Yes, we see God as dad, as a good dad, and yes, we see God as one who will bring out the punishments if we deserve them, but we also see God as, as mom, we see God as the one who wants to hold us and hug us and love us and care for us and feed us and nurture us. It's like for some of you college students, when you go home, I don't know if this is like 
just my experience, but I would take a huge bag of my laundry and I would go home and I would just say, I want to eat this, that, and the other thing, because mom would ask. And it seemed like when I walked in the door, mom just wanted to serve me. And it was awesome. And we don't often think that that's just, in a sense, who God is, that when you show up, that all God wants to do is to commune with you, to love you, to shower you with affirmation and encouragement to say, you are my son or you are my daughter. I love you. What are you struggling with? How can I help you? How can I be there for you in the midst of this? Throughout these images of God as mom, we also see God as the one who carries us. I remember there's this really hokey poem, and I know that you know this, it's foot, footprints in the sand or whatever, and there's that one line where it's like, when things got tough, there was one set of footprints. In a sense, it's sort of biblical, because God is the one who carries us. Like a mom carries her child. I just want you to see that God, in a sense, it's not just the images that you have of God and they don't have to be the crazy, scary images. They're very biblical images because God is so big and so vast that he wants us to understand him in different ways, ways that we might not have understood him before. I think that oftentimes we put limitations on God, whether it's with our language and the way that we communicate who God is or the things, the experiences that we've been through that have forced us to say God is this person. And for a lot of us, it might be God is this negative image because in the down times in my life, I've felt his judgment, perhaps. For some of you, that's not your story at all, but I think our experiences have dictated to a large degree who we believe God to be. And I think for some of us, we need to return to the text and to see God for who he actually is and to no longer put God in a box and to limit God by saying he is these things because the scope and the breadth of who God is and who God wants to reveal God's self to us as is so much greater than we could ever even imagine. I also think, sadly, that sometimes these limitations, they end up uh, demonstrating the limitations that we place on ourselves as people. We see texts in the Bible that, that demonstrate, especially through Christ, that there is equality. Galatians 3.28 talks about, in Christ there is now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We see that through Christ there is, in a sense, unity. But I think sometimes the limitations that we have put on God become the limitations that we put on ourselves and we live in a world of hierarchies where people are better than other people and we are the ones that deserve grace and we are the ones that deserve salvation and we are the ones that deserve to be seen as God's chosen people. I hope though that tonight in a small way as we think about moms and the situations that we've been through and we think about God as this nurturing, caring, forgiving, loving, just want to be with you in the midst of conversation and to pray and to be present and to be like all those great images that we have of mom and how God in a sense lives into that. He's the one that carries us, the ones that advocates for us, the one that nurses us and, and allows us to be who we are. I hope that we begin to see the affirmation that that allows us and that invests in who we are where it's no longer a hierarchical scheme of the good people up here and then me down here we can see the amount of investment that God places in us as the mom who just wants to be with her child.
I hope that tonight, regardless of where you are and what you've been through and what you're going through even now, that you will at least allow yourself to hear this phrase. You are a child of the Most High God. And God wants to nurture you and sustain you and love you, to advocate for you and to fight for you and to be present for you when you need someone to be present with you. I hope that regardless of what you go through, you have seen the evidence of that, not just in the grand metaphors of the Old Testament, but you've seen and experienced that through Christ, who taking on flesh became what we needed him to become and allowed himself to completely dismantle the hierarchies that we live in each and every day, where now, through Christ, we are united, we are equal, we are loved.